The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. We are in part 7 of our series on Abraham. And if you're just visiting with us this morning, as a church, we've been walking through some tough days of grief as we lost our pastor and friend Gary DeSalvo to cancer just a few weeks ago. Now, for some of you, it might seem strange that we're just trekking along with Abraham as we walk through this grieving process together. If you'd asked me a few months ago, what should we teach on as our church walks through the season, I may have said something like, I don't know, maybe a few weeks on grief or just suffering, something like that. But I want to assure you that God is sovereign, and he knows just what he's doing because Gary wanted us teaching Abraham. Over the last few weeks, I know that he had, he desired to be here to teach some of these messages. Over the last few weeks, it's been humbling to see how all of God's word, as, as 1 Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says that all of God's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we've seen how all of God's word points us right where we need to be the last few weeks, haven't we? I think uh, Chase and Tim and Danny, when Danny interviewed Ayers up here on the stage, have done so well connecting the Abraham story to the gospel and also to what we're experiencing here as a church as we continue to grieve together. God's word is timeless. And the story of Abraham is about a man who had to trust God, who had to walk by faith and not by sight. And so we're having to walk by faith and not by sight as we continue to walk through these weeks together. So my prayer as we walk through the stories of Abraham, that God would continue to bring healing and as we continue to grieve together the loss of our friend. So turn to Genesis 16. I want to show you, this is an Abraham timeline. I know we forget sometimes how much time passes between chapters in the Bible. You might think Genesis 15 happened on Tuesday and Genesis 16 happened on Thursday. That's not really how it plays out. But we forget how much time passes. So it's really been, it's been 10 years since God first promised Abraham a child. And as you'll see on this timeline, it's going to be 25 years from the promise all the way to the promised one, which is Isaac. And so you see the patience required for them as they walk this journey together. And some have said that there's about one to three years between Genesis 15, which Chase preached last week, and then Genesis 16, which we'll be in today. I think if you look at Genesis 15, Chase laid out very well last week how Abraham had this really powerful experience with God, didn't he? Just the image in that, in that chapter of, of just the, the power of that, that visual, the end of, of chapter 15. And we see... I think sometimes in the church, we see Christians chasing after experiences, thinking that those kinds of things will guarantee not falling into temptation and sin. But what's interesting is you see in Genesis 15, this powerful experience that Abram has with God, then just a couple years later, Genesis 16, he and Sarah fall into great sin together. And so we can't just go chasing after experience, thinking that that's going to buoy us or keep us from falling into temptation and sin. It will not. And so we look at Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
Now, this is a very significant statement because in that culture, a woman really had one role, and that was to bear children. And so she feels like a failure. Culturally speaking, this would have been a huge deal in that day, and she feels like a complete failure. And on top of that, God promised a son. And it hasn't happened yet. So she's letting, she feels like she's letting her husband down. She feels like she's letting God down. There's something wrong with me that I can't bring about this promised one. And so you can just picture the, the pressure that she feels. Sarah, next verse says, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now they would have gotten this servant from Egypt in their journey down there most likely. And Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So there's a problem. It's been 10 years since God promised a son, and they still don't have one. I want you to look at Sarah's words in verse 2. It says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Can you hear the blame in that statement? She's blaming God for this circumstance. When you and I start blaming God, we start justifying all kinds of things, don't we? And so she's, she's trying to help God bring about the promise. She's wondering, God promised us a son, and he's not here yet, so let me just try to help God out a little bit. And this is her thinking. And so Sarah makes a, makes a plan. She has an Egyptian servant named Hagar who's younger. And she says to Abram, I'll give my servant to you, and then she can bear a son for us. Now, how many of you all think that sounds reasonable? Raise your hand. No one's going to admit that in here, right? Now, this wouldn't make sense in our culture today, but it made perfect sense in their culture. This was really common in that culture to do. If a wife couldn't get pregnant, it was very common for her to find a concubine for her husband, give that woman to her husband, have the child, and then she would adopt the child as her own. This was a very common practice. This is what the culture did. So reading the story, it's not like Sarah just thought of this out of nowhere. This is what the culture would have done back in that day. This is an ancient tablet that someone found in Mesopotamia. And Just check out some of these ancient names. If Galimnanu bears children... Shanima shall not take another wife. But if Galimnanu fails to bear children, Galimnanu shall get for Shanima a woman from the Lulu country, one of them Lulu girls, whoever they are, as a concubine. In that case, Galimnanu herself shall have authority over the offspring. So in that culture, the wife would take the, 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 the servant's child as her own, and just a little pause here. God never endorses polygamy in Scripture. If you're a skeptic or someone isn't really not a follower of Christ yet, and you're looking at this, you go, this is, this is why I don't read the Bible. The Bible's just messed up. Well, the Bible tells us what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us what, this is not endorsing what happened here. This is telling us what happened. And so polygamy was never God's intent or design for man. But this is what happens in the story. It's it's really what happens when they allow the cultural values to form their identity. And so why they're doing this because they're allowing culture to form them. A modern parallel might be how a Christian might approach money 
or how a non-Christian might approach money. A Christian might approach money the same way that an unbeliever might approach money or entertainment or consumerism. A Christian living with someone that they're not married to. And so these, these are ways in which the, the culture begins to form and shape us in ways that get us to compromise. And so we see this all the time. It's what happens when we allow culture to form our values and our identity. And so what does this lead to? It leads to Sarah trying to accomplish God's plans her way. I think you and I do this all the time. We, we, we think of something as God's plan. And in a sense, it is God's plan for her to have a son. That is, God said that to her and Abram. But she is, she is wondering, where is this son? Where is he? Where is the promised one? And so she takes matters into her own hands. And so there's, there is a sense of entitlement, a sense of justification. When you and I think we're fulfilling God's plans, this opens the door for all kinds of sins in our lives. Look at verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So who is looking at who with contempt? So Hagar is looking at Sarah with contempt. After she conceives, Hagar looks at Sarah with contempt. In the Hebrew, the word for contempt is that Sarah looked small. So Sarah, who's been in the center of this promise all along, she now feels like she's on the periphery. And Hagar is now the one in the center. And you know that during a couple's first pregnancy, there is a bond that you feel with your spouse that's special, the sense of pride, like, we did that. We did this, right? And this is Abram and Hagar. This is the pride that they're probably experiencing. And so as Hagar's belly begins to grow, we don't know if this is happening or not, but maybe she's starting to gloat. Maybe she's sporting a tube top with her belly hanging out. And she's walking around, kind of rubbing her belly. And Sarah's starting to get jealous. And so now Sarah feels pushed to the margins, and she's no longer in the center. And so she What's interesting is Sarah gets exactly what she wants. But what's it lead to? It leads to her being unfulfilled. She's not happy, and she's angry. Let this be an example to all of us. We take matters into our own hands. We might get the very thing we're chasing, but it leads to all kinds of chaos, all kinds of unhappiness, no joy, and lots and lots of anger and bitterness. And this is where Sarah is. I would tell you that, that, any, that many pastoral counseling sessions in my office, you could just take out this particular sin and just fill in the blank with something else, and this is what we see. Someone who often maybe took things into their own hands, and now there's just a lot of pain and heartache, anger and frustration because they didn't follow the plan of God. Look down at verse Five. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. 
May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So now reality has sunk in. And now Sarah's doing the blame game. And she says, This is your fault, Abram. It was wrong that I couldn't conceive. It was wrong that God hasn't come through. And now Hagar is pregnant with your child. And so may God choose between us, between me and you. This is really a, her way of saying, this is your fault, Abram, and God is on my side. I, I feel like she's probably yelling at this point in the story, right? What's happening here is they're, they're trying to solve a problem with a human solution, which always creates what? New problems. And we see this all over the Bible, don't we? When we try to, when people try to solve a problem with a human solution, it always creates a mess and chaos. And we see it here. In verse 6, look back at verse 6. What does he call Hagar? He says, your servant. He didn't call her my wife. He says, your servant. You hear the blame not coming from, from Abram. He, Take your servant back. And do with her as you please. And so he gives Hagar back to Sarah. And it says, Sarah deals harshly with her. In the Hebrew, this is the word mistreated, which would be the same word used when the Egyptians mistreated harshly the nation of Israel when they're enslaved in Egypt. This probably means physical abuse. Sarah has put Hagar in an impossible situation. They snatched her up from Egypt and now she's a servant, and now she is pregnant with Abram's child, and she had no say in the matter. And now she's being most likely physically abused by Sarah. And so this is the plight of, of Hagar and just where she is. And we know it's really bad because Hagar, it says Hagar flees. So whatever Sarah did must have been so bad that it would send a pregnant woman out into the desert. This is a 70-mile journey through rough territory. This is a week of walking. Ladies, how many of you all, when you're pregnant, would want to go for a 70-mile walk in the desert? No. So we know things were bad to send someone like her to where she went. We know things were bad for, for Hagar I heard a pastor named Jason Fritz make this really interesting observation. He said that both Sarah and Hagar suffer from the same problem. They have allowed the culture to form their identity. Sarah says, I'm nothing without a child. And Hagar says, I'm everything because I have one. And so this comes from the culture that they're in. When we allow culture to shape our identity, there's an open door for all kinds of sin. And so in Sarah's day... A woman's primary role would have been to have children. And so they could continue the family name. And so what, the question is, what about today? What would be some things for a woman where they might find their identity in our culture today? And for some, depending on what circle you're in, it might still primarily be about bearing children. For others, in other circles, it might be bearing children but then also doing everything else like many of you all do 
You've got the career and the education. And so you, some of you moms just blow my mind with how you do what you do. But maybe you're in a circle where the cultural identity in that circle is to do everything and to do it all so well. And then for some of you, the circle you're in might be, well, I don't want really any of that. I want to be independent. I want to be free from any constraints. But I want you to see something. Each kind of person is still allowing the culture to form their identity in whatever culture you're in. And so this applies to the guys here as well, but what are some ways in which you've allowed culture to form your identity? Because you can't let, we can't let culture form us, right? That's not the way God designed it. And so this misplaced identity they misplace their identity in the wrong thing, and so they get the very thing that they want. And whenever, you, whenever you and I do that, if you get what you want, you become proud. If you don't, you become bitter. It's what happens in these situations. So I want to go back to the story for a moment. Why would God allow them to go so long with no child? I think that's a very good question. Why would God have them go so long with no child. Hebrews eleven twelve says, Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Hebrews 11 says, Abram was as good as dead. I'm not sure who the author of Hebrews was, but he had a sense of humor for sure. And you might say, well, wait a second. We saw the chart a while ago, right? That Abram lived to be 175 years old, right? I mean, he was a young 86 when Ishmael was born. But everyone in here, you all know that 86 is too old for making babies, right? Old people don't make babies. And the A15 service this morning said amen to that, right? (laughs) What I think you see here in the Bible is that there is a lot of barrenness with God's plan, isn't there? We see it in the life of Sarah. We see it with Rebecca later and Rachel. There is a lot of barrenness with God's plan, and it plays out physically in the scriptures. But I think even for you and I, there is a lot of barrenness, spiritual barrenness in the plan of God that we have to deal with. And for some of you in the room, it might be you're right in the middle of God's plan, you're being obedient. But there's still a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression and a lot of questions and a lot of doubts. We see all through Scripture and in our own lives that you can be right in the middle of God's plan, but it just feels, it feels barren. And the question is why? Well, the Scriptures tell us that he's teaching us patience. He's teaching us faithfulness, endurance. James 1 calls it steadfastness. And so what God's doing, I think, in the story is he makes them wait. He makes a promise and then makes them wait so long so that when it happens, there's no question it's him. So that he gets the glory. I mean, Abram was good as dead, Hebrews says. So Abram's not going to be like, you know, yeah, I did that. You know, like, that's not him. Like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And I hope that you're starting to see 
here how this is starting to point us to the gospel. I also want to tell you, as you look at Genesis 16, something stands out in contrast to, to chapters 12 through 15. In Genesis 12, Abram builds two altars. In Genesis 13, he builds one. In Genesis 15, God makes an altar. So what do you see in Genesis 16? I don't see any altars. There's no worship. I mean, they're, they're thinking about God. They're talking about God. I mean, Sarah's talking about God. But no one's worshiping God. In earlier chapters, it'll say, Abram built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. And there's no calling on the name of God in this chapter. There's no altars. There's no worship. I think about Romans 1 where Paul talks about whenever you and I replace the creator with the creation, this is idolatry. It's what's happening here. So what's happening on the stage of Genesis 16, what's playing out physically isn't all that's playing out. There's more to it than that. There is some hard stuff going on here. There's no worship. No one's calling on God. And the same goes for you and I, that whenever you're dealing with major sin in your life, or even minor sin, if there is such a thing, you can't just look at what's playing out on the stage of your life externally, but there's stuff happening internally. And it's always a worship problem. And so Genesis 16, there's no worship, there's no calling on God. And what we see here is that misplaced identity leads to disordered worship. And so... Where do you and I struggle with this? Do we allow the focus to be just on the external sin, but not on the heart attitude of worship? Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I can't do that verse and not think about that song, Cotton Eye Joe, when I read that. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Sounds like my son. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered, and Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of the son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to, a to Abram. Sarah is so harsh with Hagar that she runs out into the desert. And then we also, in this text, we see this messenger, angel of the Lord. And so the question is, who is this? Some think it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Some think it's just an angel. And so I'm not a scholar. I'm not going to break that tie. Let those guys work that out. But something it's the pre-incarnate Christ, something it's an angel, but we know it's whether it's God himself or whether it's just a messenger from God, 
This is just a powerful story in the rest of Genesis 16. For the rest of our time this morning, I'm going to do three things. I want to address the elephant in the room. I want to talk about the gospel. Then I want to tell you a story. First, the elephant in the room. When you and I read this passage, many of us think about Islam. We think about, of course, Ishmael is the ancestor of many in the Muslim world today. And Islam claims Ishmael as their Isaac. He is their promised one. They, they teach that he's the one that went up on the mountaintop with Abraham, and it was almost a sacrifice. Now, you might hear Christians say things like, if Abraham, if Abraham had just been patient and not fathered Ishmael, then the Arab people wouldn't exist, and the Middle East conflict could have been avoided. And I just want to tell you this morning, I, I think this kind of thinking is not helpful as we try to live on mission in our world today. I can't give this full treatment this morning, but I will point you to an article on, go to the Gospel Coalition website, not right now, but later, and this is written by a Palestinian Christian uh, titled, I Am Not Abraham's Mistake. In the article he says, viewing an entire people entire group of people, one of the families of the earth, primarily as an obstacle to peace instead of as an object of God's reconciling love in Christ, is a sub-Christian view of God's purposes for the nations in the drama of redemption. Brandon Brewer, our global outreach pastor, recently told me that he said the last 25 years, more Muslims have come to know Christ than in all of history. So we cannot simply characterize millions of people today as Abraham's mistake. Ishmael's birth didn't catch God off guard. God knew about Ishmael as he did Isaac. Ishmael's descendants are people that are made in the image of God, just like us, and need the gospel just like us. And so we cannot just categorize people as just primarily Abraham's mistake. We cannot do that and live on mission in this world. So speaking of the gospel, let's talk about the gospel. How do we find the gospel in this story? Well, it's not really that hard. You know why? Because the Bible tells us how to find the gospel in this story. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. I'm not going to read this passage. I want you to look at it, though, so you know I'm not teaching heresy. Galatians 4, verses 21 to 31. And here, Paul uses the story of Sarah and Hagar to make a point. So what is Paul saying as he uses this, this analogy, this example of Sarah and Hagar to make his point? Paul uses the story to talk about salvation. You see, the Galatians, they see law as a way to justify themselves. They see obeying the Jewish law as a way to bring about right relationship with God, which was not its intent. And so for those that do this kind of thing, they are, instead of relying on God's grace for salvation, they're relying on works. And so Abraham and Sarah relied on their own efforts to bring about the promise. And Paul says, for those relying on works to save them, you're like the sons of Ishmael. 
But if you're someone that relies on God's grace to save you, well, you're like the sons of Isaac. And so Paul uses this analogy in Galatians 4 to show how those that are not adding works as a method or means for salvation, if you're looking at salvation as this, this salvation is by faith alone through grace alone, then you are like the son of promise. You're, the, you're like the sons of Isaac spiritually. But if you're someone who's adding law to the gospel and adding good works to the gospel to get saved, like the Galatians were doing, then you're like a son of slavery. You're like the son of Ishmael. And so Paul uses this picture to make a spiritual point and to show this conflict happening in Galatia. I think what happens for us as we begin to follow Christ, what often happens is we get saved by faith and then begin living out a works-based, merit-based system with God. We get saved by faith and then live by works. It's what the Galatians were doing. And so in Galatians 3, verse 2 through 3, it says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So every one of us has this struggle, I think. We start with faith and then live by works. And we do it all the time. And it's what the Galatians were doing. And it's what Abraham and Sarah were doing. When Chase preached on Genesis 15 last week, he brought up Genesis 15:6 as the linchpin of this whole chapter where it says, and he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Listen, salvation has always been by faith. There are a lot of people that might look at the scriptures and think, it seems like salvation was by works over here, but by faith and grace over here, New Testament, that's not the case. It's always been by faith. And we see that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says, God... Abram believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in one chapter, Abram has faith, and God credits him as righteousness. In the next chapter, in Genesis 16, we see Abraham and Sarah living by works. So they have this powerful experience. He believes God, counts it as righteousness. The next chapter... A couple years later, they're living by works. I think you and I do the exact same thing. We start with faith. We start with grace. And then a few weeks, months, years down the road, we're doing some merit-based system with God, some works-based system with God in order to earn favor with him. It is the human default condition. And so maybe you're someone that you start living in faith, living by faith, but then you took matters into your own hands at some point in life, made some sinful decisions, and now there's pain from those decisions. And there's pain in your life that can be linked back to that night or that summer or that relationship or that season of life. But here's the really good news this morning, is that detour into disobedience doesn't have to become the permanent road. You see, sin always has consequences, sometimes earthly consequences, often painful. And the pain in this life might never go away. I can't guarantee you 
that you won't experience some pain for the rest of your life because of certain decisions that we've made. I can't guarantee that for you. So we might take some of that pain to the grave, but we don't have to take our sins there. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is always opportunity for repentance. All of us sin, struggle with sin, but how you respond to sin is so important. I love what George Morrison says. He says, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And so my open prayer is that you would find that grace today. Understanding that you don't just start in faith and then start living by works. It's always by faith. It's always by grace. Even the ability that you and I have to do a good deed or a good work is only because of faith and grace. All the credit goes to him. And so now, for the story I told, said that I would tell you, it's not hard to find the gospel in Genesis 16, but this chapter is also very thick with pain and grief. This poor Egyptian girl, Hagar, is ripped from her homeland and She's taken by Sarah and Abraham, and she's a servant to them. She's a means to an end. No one sees her humanity. No one really sees her. She's just there in the background doing what she's been asked to do. And now she's pregnant in the desert and on the run. And nobody sees her. And then things are so bad, she goes off into the desert on her own as a pregnant woman, And then God shows up, and God sees her, and there's this powerful scene where it says that God sees her, and so up to this point, she's been invisible. Up to this point, no one has truly seen her in her humanity, but God shows up, and he sees her. He sees Hagar. He sees her plight. He sees her affliction and grief. Even the name Ishmael means God hears. That means every time she would call her son's name, God hears, God hears, God hears, a reminder to Abraham that he didn't listen to God. God sees and God hears. I asked Bev DeSalvo if I could share this story, and she said, please, please share this story. So I got permission before I shared this. The last week of, uh, of Gary's life, um, as a staff, we went into his hospital room on a Tuesday afternoon, or Tuesday morning, I should say. And he was sitting in a chair. He was talking to us. He was in pain, but he could still talk to us. And we thought we'd get a few more weeks with him and have several more talks like that with him. That's what we thought. That's what he thought. And as the week progressed, things kind of took a turn, as you know, and we had the prayer service here on Friday, and it became apparent to us that he's in his last days. And so on Sunday evening after baptism, the family had asked us if all the staff and wives could join them up there at the hospital and just pray and sing. At this point, Gary is sedated and won't even know we're there, but they just wanted to have us come and be with them as a family 
for a few moments. And then we heard that, well, they're really tired, so let's just wait. Let's not do, let's do a different day. So Monday rolls around, and I get a text message, maybe two or three o'clock, and the question was, what time are we going to go to the hospital to see Gary and his family? And we were saying five, six, seven o'clock, and so we settled on a time, 5.45, meet at the hospital with your, with your wives. So go to the hospital, go up to his room, and Sarah DeSalvo asked, or Sarah Riggs asked if we could have Mark bring his guitar, and so Mark brought his guitar. She meets us at the door of his room, and she says, listen, we appreciate you all being here today. We want you all to come into this room and pray and sing and share some stories. And she says, you know, we're kind of hoping that this might send him to glory. And so we go into this room, and this place is packed with people, and we're all in there together. And we just start praying and singing and weeping and sharing stories about Gary. And listen, he's on the bed. He's breathing on his own. Bev is sitting there in the bed with him, and she's lifting his hands up as we praise God together. And then Frank DeSalvo, Gary's dad, begins telling a story about how Gary got called to ministry. He starts telling us the story of how Gary broke the news to him that he wasn't going to be a doctor, but he was going to be a preacher. And as he's sharing his story with us, we could see Gary's breathing began to change a little bit. And within a few moments, let his last gasp, and we watched him pass right in front of us. And of course, in that moment, we're all just grieving and we're weeping. And, but there was this joy in the middle of that moment. I mean, this is what his daughter said she was praying for. We're hoping that this might send him to glory. And then it did. And I will tell you that, that that room, there was grief, but there was also this palpable joy as we shared that moment with his family. And so I walked out of that hospital that day just going, God, did you, did you just really do that? Like, we were supposed to go up there on Sunday. And then Monday it was like, what time are we going to go? We decided within the hour when we're going to go. He was there for every week and a half. And I walked out that hospital that day, and I just thought, God, you see us. In that room, there was this powerful mixture of grief and joy. And you could feel it. And you could sense it. In this story of Hagar, God begins to stir some hope and joy in the midst of all that grief. And so I pray that God just continues to do the same for all of us as we continue to grieve and, and move towards healing together. That God would stir in some joy. I hope that story encourages you like it did us to experience it that God sees us. He sees us in our affliction and grief. We worship a God who shows up. We worship a God who sees and a God who hears. I want to ask you to stand with me as I pray. And as Casey read this morning, 
I want to lift up holy hands to God just in praise. Just lift your hands with me as we pray together. God, we thank you. We praise you. We are so grateful to you for how you meet us right where we are, how you meet us in our grief and affliction in the same way that you met Hagar in her grief and affliction. And God, I pray that um, this would continue to heal us as we walk through this time together, Father. God, we pray that you would stir in joy in the midst of grief in this room. Lord, we know that whatever people are walking through in this place, God, we pray that you would stir in joy in the midst of that, Father, in the same way that you did in this story in Genesis 16. We praise you and we thank you. Amen.